Welcome to our lecture on state functions and our first law that relates them together. No, this isn't the first law. That would be the first law of thermodynamics, which we will get to in the next lecture. Instead, today we're going to talk about the ideal gas law, which relates to three very fundamental thermodynamic variables we've been talking about together, pressure, volume, and temperature. These variables are also all known as state variables. So the function that relates them together is known as a state function. A given state function itself is a thermodynamic variable that depends solely on the other independent thermodynamic variables. This means that we can think of state functions as models of materials. And once we know what the state function is, that is, how the state variables are related to one another, it's a whole lot of fun to plot one state variable against another, since it unlocks the secrets of the behavior of a system. So we'll be doing that a bunch today for pressure and volume. At its core, a state variable is named so because of exactly that. It is a variable that describes the state of a system. Pressure, volume, temperature, and internal energy are just a few examples. For any given configuration of the system, we can identify values of the state variables. And by configuration, I just mean where things are, like the atoms or molecules that make up the system. The single most important aspect of a variable being a state variable is that it is path independent. I said this briefly in the last lecture, but here we're going to really make sure we feel comfortable with the meaning of this definition. The fact that a state variable is path independent means that different paths can be used to calculate a change in that state function for any given process. In order to illustrate this concept, first I'll show you the math, and then I'll show a mountain. So if I want to know the change in a state variable, let's call it variable u. In going from some point A to some other point B, then it can be written as an integral over what is called the differential, du. The differential represents a tiny change in a variable, and the integral is a sum over all those tiny changes. So in this case, the integral from a to b over du is equal to u evaluated at point b minus u evaluated at point a. We write this difference as delta u. Now when I say point a and point b, I mean certain values for certain state variables of the system. And u represents some other state variable that can be expressed as a function of the ones involved in a and b. So for example, suppose a corresponds to a pressure of one atmosphere and a temperature of 300 Kelvin, and b corresponds to a pressure of 10 atmospheres and a temperature of 400 Kelvin. And we'll suppose that the variable u corresponds to the internal energy of the system, which is in fact designated by the letter u. The integral over du from a to b could be performed in different ways. For example, first I could integrate over pressure from p equals 1 to p equals 10 atmospheres, holding temperature constant at 300 Kelvin. And then add to that the integral over temperature from t equals 300 to t equals 400, holding pressure constant at 10 atmospheres. That would give me a value for delta u. I could also arrive at point B by integrating first over temperature from 300 to 400 Kelvin, 
but now at a pressure of one atmosphere, and then add to that the integral over pressure from one to 10 atmospheres, but now at a temperature of 400 Kelvin. The point is that since this is a state variable, the delta U that I obtained, no matter which of these integration paths I take, is going to be the same. The path does not matter. The value of a state function only depends on the other state variables, in this case, temperature and pressure. From this definition, you can see that this also implies that if I were to travel back to point A, then the integral must be zero. The change in U from point A to point A is always zero, since U is a state function and only depends on where it is in terms of these other variables, not how it got there. I could mess around with the system in all kinds of ways, pushing it all over pressure and temperature space. But if I push it back to the starting place, the internal energy will be the same as when it started. Now that's path independence. Okay, that's a bit of math. Now, how about that mountain? Suppose one day I feel like hiking up to the top of Mount Everest. That's a height of 8,848 meters above sea level. Now there are two main routes to getting to the top. Notice that each of these routes is a different distance. Some require less total hiking distance, while others represent a much longer trek. But the key here is that regardless of which path you take to get to the top, once you're at the top, you are always the exact same distance from sea level. The height of the mountain is a state function. It is not at all dependent on the path taken to get there. As long as your configuration in space is the same, in this case, that would be the location of the peak, then your height variable will always have the same value. So why am I making such a big deal out of all this path independent stuff? Here's the thing. In thermodynamics, we often want to measure or know the change in a given variable, like the internal energy or temperature or pressure or volume as we do something to the system. The fact that these variables are path independent means that in order to measure a change, I can use the easiest path between two states. In the case of my PV diagram from before, this path here might be a whole lot easier to measure in an experiment than this one here. For a state variable, I can choose whatever path I want to find the answer. And then that answer is valid for all possible paths. Now, since I'm making the distinction of path independence so important, you may have guessed by now that there are also variables in thermodynamics that are path dependent. The two most important ones and the only ones we will care about in this course are work and heat. Work and heat are both path dependent variables since they involve a process in which energy is transferred across the boundary of the system. This means that such variables are associated with a change in the state of the system, a transfer of energy, as opposed to simply the state of the system itself. I'll come back to these in a moment, but first I want to stick with the key state variables of this lecture, namely pressure, volume, temperature, and the number of atoms or molecules in the system. Temperature we already spent a whole lecture on, and you probably have a good sense of volume and number of particles. But pressure may not be as intuitive, so I want to make sure I define that clearly first. Pressure is a state variable that is associated with a force distributed over a surface with a given area, 
So pressure equals force divided by an area. This means that pressure has units of newtons per meter squared, which also is known as a pascal, named after the famous French mathematician of the 17th century. One pascal is a pretty small amount of pressure, about that exerted by a dollar bill resting flat on a table. At sea level, the pressure of the atmosphere is around 100,000 pascals, also equal to one atmosphere, which is just another unit of pressure. Now, in terms of what pressure means at the molecular level, we can think of a gas of atoms or molecules moving randomly around, as we saw in the Brownian motion that I discussed in the temperature lecture. Each particle exerts a force each time it strikes the container wall. Now, since pressure is force per area, we just need to get from these individual collision forces to an average expression, which we do by writing that pressure is equal to the collision rate, that is, the number of collisions per unit time, times the time interval over which the collisions are observed, times the average energy imparted by a collision, divided by the volume in which the collisions are taking place. From basic physics, we learn that energy equals force times distance. So if you look at this expression for pressure, it makes sense. We've taken our force per area definition and put energy in place of force and added a distance term on the bottom, since E equals F times D. This shows that pressure can also be viewed as energy per unit volume. So now that we've defined what it is, let's play around with the pressure in our demo to make sure we have a good intuition for the variable, and in particular, how it's connected to another state variable, volume. In this demo, we're going to explore the relationship between volume and pressure. These are state variables that are related to one another via the ideal gas law. What that law lets us do is to make predictions about the effects of changing one of those variables, the effects that that has on, on other variables. So how am I going to do that? Well, here's a glass jar, and it's hooked up to a pump. And what this pump does is it sucks air out of the jar. And that's what we call being under vacuum. Now, it's not a perfect vacuum since there's still going to be air inside there, just a lot less of the air than we have outside. So inside this jar, the pressure is going to be different than the pressure outside. Now, roughly speaking, given the strength of this pump, there are going to be about 1 20th the number of air molecules inside this jar compared to outside. So that means that the pressure inside is about 0.05 atmospheres when I turn the pump on compared to one atmosphere for sort of normal standard uh, sea level pressures. So let's now play around with this and see what the effects of changing the pressure are on various items. I have different things that I'm going to put into this jar and lower the pressure and we're going to take a look at what happens. First, I'm going to start with a balloon. Now, this balloon is uh, something I hope uh, many of us have experienced. It has pressure inside from the air inside. And combined with the tension of the balloon and the pressure of one atmosphere outside, it's in a stable equilibrium. It's not changing. It's not expanding or contracting. But if I change the pressure outside, which is a force acting on it, what do you think will happen? Let's find out. I'm going to put the balloon inside, and we're going to turn on the pump.
So what you can see is that by lowering the pressure outside, that's the force that's being imposed on the outside of the balloon, by lowering that force, the balloon was able to find a new equilibrium. It was able to expand more. Now, if I take that uh, lower pressure away by undoing this, this hose here, then you see it goes right back to the initial place where it started. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of a sense of what happens when we play with pressure for a balloon. What about a can of potato chips. What do you think would happen if I put a can of potato chips inside of this vacuum chamber? Well, let's take a look. So what you saw there is that I was actually able to open the can of potato chips just by lowering the pressure outside. What's happening is that the air molecules outside the can, outside the top of the can, are a lot less in terms of the force they're putting down on top than the air molecules inside of the can. Because the ones inside of the can are still at one atmosphere. So I've got a big pressure differential across the top of the can. And it's so much that it's enough to burst the top open. And that's a pretty fun way to open a can of potato chips. There's no better way to shave than with shaving cream that's been put under pressure. So what I'm gonna do now is fill this container up with some shaving cream. And let's see, what do you think is gonna happen when I put this under pressure? Okay, so I'll turn on my pump again. So as I lowered the pressure outside of the shaving cream bubbles, those bubbles wanted to expand just like the balloon and find a new equilibrium given the lower pressure outside. Pressure is related to volume. And we know that from the ideal gas law because, well, because PV equals nRT. And since T and N and R were all constant in this experiment, if I lower the pressure, volume must change in reaction. So this shows you uh, in, in a pretty intuitive way, I hope, how we have this interdependence between uh, two of the most important state variables in thermodynamics, pressure and volume. So there we were able to see firsthand the close relationship between volume and pressure. In order to dive deeper into this connection, let's go back now to the piston we discussed in lecture two. With a piston, we'll be able to really connect three of these state variables, pressure, volume, and temperature, and their changes together. The setup here is pretty simple. It's a cylinder filled with some gas, and at the top, we have fitted a movable piston. Now, at equilibrium, the gas occupies some volume V, and it exerts a uniform pressure P on the cylinder's walls and on the piston. Remember that equilibrium means that the macroscopic variables of the system do not change with time. At a given temperature, the gas particles, 
which could be either atoms or molecules, will have a certain average kinetic energy. With that energy, the gas particles will be ricocheting off of the container walls. If the piston has a cross-sectional area A, then the force exerted by the gas on the piston is force equals pressure times area. But now, let's suppose that I have a bunch of tiny pebbles handy, and I start to put them on top of the piston, one by one. Just by their weight, these pebbles will exert a force down on the piston, inward into the container, resulting in a compression of the gas inside. Now, remember that I just recalled from intro physics that energy equals force times distance? Well, as I add pebbles here to the top of the piston, we certainly have a force times distance. The force is external from the pebbles, and the distance is just how far down the piston gets displaced. This type of energy is called work, which is a path-dependent thermodynamic variable. It involves energy flow across the boundary of the system, measuring change of the system and not the state of the system itself. Now, once this, the piston has had a chance to adjust to the force that was applied by the pebble and come to a new equilibrium position, we can set the magnitude of the external force exactly equal to the pressure of the gas inside the container times the area of the piston. The two forces cancel one another when the piston is at rest. So each time we place a pebble on top, we can think of a little bit of work being done by the piston on the gas. A little bit of force times distance happens. This is a good time to put up a plot of pressure versus volume of the gas inside the container. Say we start at some point here on the lower part of this graph with some pressure and volume. Now we add a pebble to the top. What happens in this plot? Well, we go down a little bit in volume, so we move over to the left, and the pressure increases, so we move up a little. As I add more pebbles, the volume of the gas continues to decrease while the pressure increases. And at each step, work is being done on the gas equal to the area under this curve. I can sum up these pieces of area along the way to see how much total work is being done. Some of you who have had some calculus will notice that what I'm doing here is taking an integral. Remember, that's a sum over many small changes in one or more variables. If I move from this pressure and volume point over to this one by adding all those pebbles, then the work that I have done to the gas is equal to the total area under this curve. That's also equal to the integral over the pressure times the change in volume, or the integral over P dV. In order to evaluate this integral, we have to know how the pressure of the gas varies with volume during the process. In general, the pressure is not constant during the process, but rather the pressure depends on the volume and temperature. But the most important thing here is the following. Notice the big difference between this integral and the one we did before for a state function. In this case, even though I'm going from one PV point to another, the way in which I go there is crucial. The integral will be completely different depending on which path I take. The work is a path-dependent variable. And heat falls into the same category as work, path-dependent, in the sense that it is energy that can be put in or taken out of a system during a process and not a state of the system. 
Because heat and work depend on the path, neither quantity is determined solely by the endpoints of a thermodynamic process. Okay, we're going to come back to this piston, so please don't forget about it. But before I go any further, I need to turn back to the idea of a state function in order to tell you about a very nice and simple relationship of state variables, that is pressure and volume and temperature. In the case of gases, we have the ideal gas law. This relationship makes a few important assumptions, the two most important ones being that the particles that make up the gas do not interact with one another, and that they have negligible volume compared to the volume of the container. We're going to see how this relationship helps us to better understand the work of our piston here. The origins of the ideal gas date back to the mid-17th and 18th centuries, when a number of scientists were fascinated by the relationship between pressure, volume, and temperature. For example, Boyle's Law, published in 1662, states that at constant temperature, the pressure times volume of a gas is a constant. Guy-Lussac's Law says at constant volume, the pressure is linearly related to temperature. Avogadro's Law relates the volume to the number of moles. And Charles's Law states that at constant pressure, volume is linearly related to temperature. Clearly, for that period in history, playing with gases was all the rage. If I have a container of gas, particles at some fixed temperature, then the pressure exerted by the gas on the walls of the container is set by how often they collide with the walls, and also how much kinetic energy they have when they do. If I were to decrease the volume of the container at constant temperature, you can see that the collisions will occur more frequently, resulting in higher pressure. If I increase the volume, but hold the temperature constant, the collision frequency goes down, lowering the average pressure. On the other hand, if I keep the volume fixed, but increase the temperature, well then both the collision frequency as well as the amount of force per collision will increase, resulting in an increase in pressure. All of these different relationships can be combined together to form the ideal gas law, which says that the pressure times volume equals the number of moles times what is known as the universal gas constant times the temperature, or PV equals nRT. As a reminder, one mole of any substance is equal to 6.022 times 10 raised to the 23rd power of the number of entities that make up the substance. For example, a mole of water is equal to that number, also called Avogadro's number, of H2O molecules. Okay, now that we're armed with our state function that relates these variables to one another, let's return to our piston example, as promised. Here's the same piston as before, with some pebbles placed on top exerting a force down, which in equilibrium is exactly cancelled by the pressure the gas exerts up. By the way, just to be sure there's no confusion on this point, the pressure of the gas is the same on all sides of the container. It's the average force per unit area of the gas, and it has no particular directional preference. The gas fills any container it's placed in, and its pressure is the force exerted on any boundary of the container. Now, remember that I said that if I take pebbles off of the top, the pressure from the gas pushes the piston up to a new equilibrium position that is higher since there's less force pushing down, so 
less pressure is needed to cancel that force and be in equilibrium again. We can use our intuitive picture to see how the volume expansion of the container is what allows the pressure to decrease. More volume for the same number of gas molecules to roam around in means fewer collisions, on average, with the container walls. Bigger volume, smaller pressure. And when I do take pebbles off, the change in volume means that the system is doing work. And as we saw, the work done is the integral over P times dV, which is the area under the PV curve on this diagram. So I could get from, say, state 1 with P1 and V1 to state 2 with P2 and V2 by any path. And each path will involve a different amount of work that the gas does. The way I've drawn it here, P1 and V1 have higher pressure and lower volume. So going from state 1 to state 2 implies removing pebbles from the top, while going back to state 1 would mean putting pebbles back on. From state 1 to state 2, the system is doing work, although in this case, the volume is increasing instead of decreasing. Because of that, it has to have the opposite sign as the work done when the volume decreased. For this course, we use a sign convention where volume decrease is positive work, while volume expansion is negative work. It's still the area under this curve, but we put a minus sign in front since it is work done by the system on the piston. The system being the gas. We'll discuss in more detail the sign conventions for both work and heat in the next lecture. So, in going from state 2 to state 1, we are decreasing the volume and the integral over PdV will be the area under that curve, which is the work done by that process. Our sign convention tells us that in this case, it is positive work since we're doing work to the system. So if I go along this path here to get from state 1 to state 2, and then let's say this other path here to get from state 2 back to state 1, then the total work done over this full loop is going to be the difference in the areas under the two curves. That happens to be the area inside of this loop region. So for this process, in which work is done by the gas on the piston as it expands, and then work is done by the piston on the gas to push it back to its original starting point, the total net work that is the area in here is going to be work done by the system since overall it has a negative sign in front of it. That's because we started in state 1. Let me emphasize again that I'll be talking a whole lot more about work as well as heat in the next lecture. But here, it's such an important part of the pressure, volume, temperature, state functions that I can't possibly cover the ideal gas without talking about work. It just wouldn't feel right. And another thing that might not feel right to you at this time is that I still haven't brought temperature to the piston. Let's do that now. The first point I want to make about temperature is to remind you that since an ideal gas has no interactions, the only kind of energy going on inside that container is due to the kinetic energy of the gas particles. That means that the internal energy of the gas is only related to the average kinetic energy, which we're all, we also happen to know is directly related to the temperature of the system. So the internal energy of an ideal gas must be proportional to the temperature of the gas. Specifically, the internal energy of an ideal gas is equal to 3 halves times the number of moles of the gas times a constant called the gas constant times the temperature. 
The next thing I want to tell you about temperature is to please remember that anytime you use temperature in a thermodynamic relationship or equation, you must use units of Kelvin. And finally, the third thing I'd like to do with temperature is to include it now in our piston example. We'll consider two distinct cases. First, suppose that the container walls of the piston are adiabatic, which as you may recall from last lecture, means the gas inside cannot exchange heat with its surroundings. Now, suppose again I start the piston in state one, with a bunch of pebbles sitting on top, and I begin removing the pebbles one by one. We already know that P goes down and V goes up, but what happens to the temperature? We can figure that out for this case by realizing that the gas does work on the piston when the volume expands, as I described just a few moments ago. But how does the gas do that work? Remember, work means energy has flowed across the system boundary. In this case, the system gives energy in the form of mechanical work to the piston. But where does that energy come from in the first place? You may have already guessed, it has to come from the kinetic energy of the gas. That must go down in this situation. Since no thermal energy can enter or leave the system, the only place for energy to come from to do that mechanical work is the temperature. The kinetic energy of the gas is traded for mechanical work of the piston. Therefore, in this case, the temperature goes down. Okay, how about a different scenario? What if we were to hold the temperature constant? The way we do this now is to assume the boundaries are closed as opposed to adiabatic. So heat can now pass across them. And we then envision the bottom of the container on the, on the side opposite of the piston as being in contact with an enormous reservoir. This reservoir is so incredibly big that we can think of it as an infinite either source or sink for heat to flow. But since it's so massive compared to the container, the reservoir itself is unaffected by any energy transfer. And since it's in contact with the container, such a reservoir will hold the temperature of the gas inside the container fixed to whatever the temperature of the reservoir is. Now, if I do the same thing, starting with a heap of pebbles on top of the piston in state one, and slowly removing them, the behavior of the system is different. In this case, I can use the ideal gas law to find an exact relation between pressure and volume. For a constant temperature, PV equals a constant, since the number of moles of the gas isn't changing either, and R is just a constant. This means that P must be inversely proportional to V for a constant temperature process. And we get a curve like this in going from state one to state two. This type of PV curve is called an isotherm, since it's what you get with constant temperature. If I had a different temperature, I'd get a different, though similarly shaped curve, say down here below this one. And notice that for this particular path, one at constant temperature, I can use the ideal gas law to calculate the exact amount of work done by the piston. In going from state one to state two, the work done is equal to the integral PVV over that curve. Now before, when we didn't know the path, we also didn't know what to write for the function P. But now, armed with our state function for the ideal gas, we can write the pressure as nRT divided by V. And since T is a constant, we can pull that out of the integral along with N, which is also a constant since no gas is escaping or entering, and R, 
which is a constant by definition. That leaves us an integral from v1 to v2 of 1 over v, which we know is a natural logarithm. The work done by this isothermal process, or the area under this curve, is then nRT times the natural log of v2 over v1. In this constant temperature case, the kinetic energy of the gas is still what did the work on the piston. But since the gas particles are in contact with an infinite reservoir of constant temperature, they get replenished so as to maintain their overall average temperature. You can think of the energy that went into moving the piston as ultimately coming from the heat transfer from the reservoir. I won't go much into heat at this point, but we'll come back to this piston later in the course when we talk about an engine. But when I talk about engines, I want to be able to talk about different kinds of engines based on all sorts of different thermodynamic forces, from heat to magnetism to phase change to entropy itself. So please don't forget about these beautiful PVT processes that we can understand using our ideal gas state function. Before we, we return to them, though, we're going to get a whole bunch more thermal under our belt.